Tom, are you okay? I lost her. Her? She was going to be this epic, trilogy-worthy character. I was going to be the hottest writer in Hollywood. But I can't get past Act One! You need some writer's group therapy. I am still Tom. And I'm Roshni. We're writers helping writers. Are you ready for your session? The doctors are in. If you like what you hear, make sure you subscribe, share it with your friends, and give us a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us online at writersgrouptherapy.com and on Instagram and Twitter at WG Therapy. Individually? Yeah, individually. I am Tom underscore Loveman on Twitter and Tom Loveman on Instagram. And I am at Music on Instagram and at Roshni Lamino on Twitter. Well, here we are. Day in like six, six million. I know, quarantine. right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I was actually counting it out. I think we are at least on week eight, seven or eight of the pandemic. Uh, so close sevens. Yeah, something yeah. like that. It's close to it. Yeah. Whew, uh, the never ending. <laughs> but there's some good news. You found some really good news on uh, for uh, a lot of people who might be in your situation as an independent contractor, right? Yep. Well, before we get started with that, we do want to tell people we have a great interview coming up with author John Scalzi. He has a new book out, and he'll tell us all about it and some other exciting things. So stick around for that. That'll be coming up later in the program. But yeah, so do, should we start with the good news then about... Yeah, good news. Good news is money? great. Money. <laughs> money. So actually, now this is just in California that I can tell, but... There is a pandemic unemployment assistance program, basically your regular unemployment benefits, but extended for freelancers, because I know that was a big concern that a lot of people in the entertainment industry had when the pandemic first hit. Like, hi, I don't work a regular nine to five. I don't have any, an employer that tracks my unemployment. You know, how do I get benefits? And so they've extended the benefits and they've kind of broadened the scope and made it easier for people who are um, unemployed independent contractors or underemployed independent contractors. I actually just submitted a claim myself. So we'll see what happens. But I will say they are backed up on the phone lines. So do it online. It is through the uh, regular edd.ca.gov website. Mm-hmm. Um, so the same place you go for regular benefits. And the good thing about it is you self-certify. So whereas if you work for someone else and then you you become laid off or you you know the company closes because of the covid thing you know they check with your employer to say oh yeah he works here yeah but this because you work for yourself they didn't have anyone to check with so you have to you just self certify yeah so we don't have information on other parts of the country but i would hope that in other big entertainment centers like atlanta or new york that maybe they have something similar so just check in this one i got from a congressman's newsletter that's yeah. how i heard about it so maybe don't if, it, if you don't hear about it in the news, maybe check with your local representatives. They might know something. So it's worth a shot. Other potential good news along the same lines is uh, the unions are asking Congress to uh, restore the expense deductions that we used to get that they that the tax bill last year wiped out. You know, so you, you spend money on lessons and classes and whatever you do for your, you know, your different, you know, roles in Hollywood that are your expenses. You got to, used to be able to deduct those and then they killed that. Uh, so they're trying to get that back. You know, which when you think about it, that is actually going to be so beneficial, especially because they're asking so many people to shoot or work from home. 
So think about like if you're an animator or, you know, me voiceover, and even I've had uh, people ask me to do film a commercial from my home. So I have to be the cameraman and do the sound. So if you're doing it all yourself and you're working out of a home office and you can't even deduct that. Yeah. Oh yeah. You definitely should be able to deduct your internet, your computer expenses, uh, part of your, even your rent and utilities because it's a home office then. Yeah. No, I think that's great. That's great. We really need that. Some weird news, I would call it. Um, Steven Soderbergh has been uh, named uh, the DGA's uh, go-to guy on resuming uh, work in Hollywood because he did the movie Contagion. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's funny. It's like, I mean, there's so many authors and filmmakers that have written about pandemics. I mean, we'll be interviewing one later on, but it's so funny that yeah, something, and they, I don't think they've tapped the people who did Outbreak as much as they've tapped Steven Soderbergh regarding Contagion, probably because it's so realistic, you know, but yeah, yeah. he's, he's like the guy that everyone's like, you did this movie, you're a prophet, you must know how to get us out of it. As we all try to do when we write things about, that have science involved in them, we try to do research, or, you know, if you do something historical, you do research, so you kind of do become a little bit of an expert on your specific area. And I, I imagine he, you know, had quite a bit of uh, work put in into that movie as far as understanding what would happen, you know, along those lines. And I'm sure he talked to a lot of specialists in that respect, too. So yeah. I feel like he he probably is a good person to have. I would still think they would just go to some outside expert who actually works in that field all the time. But if you're going to pull someone from your own ranks, uh, I guess not a bad choice. Yeah, yeah. And it is pretty recent. I think, when was that movie made? 2011. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, every day in quarantine feels like a lifetime. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was a pretty recent movie. So, what else? Uh, the, uh, the latest WGA news the in the court case against the agencies over packaging fees. It's kind of a confusing story to read. The Raiders Guild is kind of claiming victory, even though quite a few of their claims were basically uh, dismissed. And not only dismissed, I think it was like they With can't prejudice. bring them back yes. into the court. Yeah. Basically, the, the judge said, no, this is not going th- forward and you cannot bring it up again. You have yeah. been like chastised. So, but there's a couple, there's a couple ones that a couple claims that are still, you know, being pursued and they can, uh, you know, they can still address some of the other issues, even, even though the court doesn't, uh, you know, acknowledge the issues doesn't mean that they still won't negotiate about them because they can they can negotiate whatever they want but whether they can you know go after the agencies legally is a different question those are two completely different you know things just because they get thrown out of court doesn't mean the union is going to stop fighting for certain you know right so yeah so speaking of battles universal and amc are in to me this is actually kind of amusing they're in a battle over distribution so When the pandemic hit, Trolls World Tour was supposed to be in the theaters, but obviously didn't make it. And so Universal released it on streaming and made a killer amount. What was the total, Tom? Uh, It was either 93 or 95 million. 95 million. And so they, yeah, they made bank. And so they were like, this is awesome. We're going to do this from here on out. And AMC, which is already, you know, having trouble being a movie theater and all, was like, what? (laughs) And so they came out right away with a letter that said, and so we're never showing another Universal film in our theaters again. And 
they're basically cutting off a very big source of of movies and blockbusters. They're playing a game of chicken basically here. Now, Universal says they're going to re- so they're going to release their movies in theaters and pay video on demand at the same time. If we call that day and day. Whereas AMC is saying you're being stupid because the only reason that thing did really well is because people can't go to the movie theaters. So they feel like Universal's making a rash decision based on a, you know the situation we're dealing with where all the theaters are closed. They think they're going to do as well on the pay-per-view at home and in the theaters doing day and day, whereas AMC's like, it's not going to work, first of all. They don't think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be as profitable that way. Uh, and since they're going to do that, they're just not going to have them in the theaters anyway. So it's kind of like a game of chicken. So if Universal really believes that they can make that much money on their films and make a a profit by doing it pay-per-view at home, you know, that's their option. Uh, but they're going to be foregoing any theatrical revenues from AMC theaters. And that's about a thousand theaters. I mean, but the one thing is I do feel like Universal has the advantage because depending on what they had in their queue before the lockdown for release, people aren't going to be going like, let's say the pandemic lifted tomorrow. People still aren't going to feel comfortable going to a movie theater for quite some time. I was actually talking to my husband. We were talking about, I'm like so overdue now to go to the dentist for a regular cleaning. And he was saying, he was talking to a dentist the other day who said, I don't even feel comfortable going to the dentist. And I am a dentist. And he's like, I want, I don't want to go for like several months or maybe even a year because of this whole pandemic. If people feel that way about needed services, like going to the dentist, they're not going to want to go to a movie theater where you don't know if it's been cleaned. You don't know who's been there before, you know, it's just, why would you do it? So yeah. I mean, so let's say universal had five movies that were set to be released this summer through AMC. Even if the lockdown got lifted tomorrow, I really doubt AMC is going to see a turnout over the summer. Do you really think that Universal's not going to want, you know, the next Jurassic World movie in theaters? Do you really think they're going to make as much money selling it on the home market versus, you know, the theater market? I, I think they're going to rethink this. I mean, some movies, okay, like Harry Potter, I had to see that in the theaters. Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, even some movies like Gravity, you have to see that on a big screen because of the way it's shot. However, and especially right now, thanks to COVID-19, home studios are really affordable. TVs are cheap. Oh, I mean, there's cheap, yeah. Yeah, there are really great deals on huge, huge TVs. You could practically have a theater experience in your home and not have to deal with all the other hassle and the threat <laughs> and the threat and the threat to your bodily life. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we'll have to see how this evolves. You know, this just came out and they're kind of playing tit for tat right now on, in the news about it. And I guess we'll see what, what comes of that. I think AMC will freak out if other big studios say, Hey, we also want to do the universal model. But uh, another Disney Plus uh, news, Star Wars Rise of Skywalker is uh, available. They did um, one of those May the 4th, you know, they moved it up from like, I think, June to May the 4th. So, you know, May the 4th be with you kind of thing. So you can now hate Rise of Skywalker at home. (laughs) (laughs) And the funniest thing about that, this kind of blew up on Twitter about it. They had a thing out that said, so for... For the the launch, they were planning something special. 
And so they wanted to use people's tweets as part of that promotion. But they had this very nebulous tweet that was basically like, hey, if you use the hashtag May the 4th, here's our terms of usage and and we, we own it or not own it, but we get to use it as we see fit. And it was so vague that people just freaked out and were like, what? <laughs> so they did change the language and made it a little more clear, like, okay, you have to use this hashtag and you have to use our handle and then we can use it. We're not like trying to steal your content, but it just, it just seemed weird. It kind of flopped hard. Yeah. Yeah. At first it was basically like going out on the street corner and saying, I own the rights to supercalifragilisticexpialidocious or something. And then expecting everyone in the world to be able to pay you royalties when they use that. You can't do that. You, you know, so then they had to be more specific about it. I understand why they did it because they wanted to do a promotion and they didn't want to have to go to each person and ask permission to, you know, put together some sort of uh, tribute or whatever it is to Star Wars. But it's just when lawyers get involved in marketing, it's so horrible. <laughs> well, I mean, I think I understand that they don't want to go to every single person and you always got to read the fine print, but that's the sad thing. Like you got to read the fine print. We were actually talking about this off podcast, but um, when Gem and the Holograms came out, the live action version, I remember seeing a thing, I think it was actually off of the movie's website, and you could audition for the movie. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. And I looked at it, and it was like, share your favorite Gem memory. And then like in the fine print, it basically, so that was your audition. And in the fine print, it basically said, when you submit your video, we have the right to use it in the film. And I was like, wait a minute, because it's, first of all, it's very rare that they use your audition footage in the film. And when I've seen projects like that, I, I pass it on by. There there will be projects where they're like, oh, you audition, and if we use your footage, then we'll pay you. Well, you have no way of proving that they ever, if you never see the film, you have no way of knowing that they use your footage, so you can't claim payment. So I just think it's a little bit of a shady way to get actors or, in this case, promotional materials because you didn't dis- you didn't disclose it off off the top of your thing you know it, it i don't know you yeah. know what i'm saying bottom <laughs> line read the fine print read yeah. the, which is sad but you have to and you shouldn't have to have fine print on a tweet absolutely <laughs> so i know we've talked a lot about the pandemic as far as how it's affecting hollywood and all the new procedures in place there's actually been some talk on twitter from the Casting Directors uh, Association about the protocols that they're going to have to put in place, you know, with bringing people into the rooms and how many people can be in the room at a time and cleaning and all this stuff. But we were actually discussing, is the pandemic, because it's going to end up making things so localized. Actors aren't going to want to travel. Crews are going to want to stay here in L.A. or in their regional markets. So L.A. was already having issues before this where people were like, hey, the jobs are leaving, even though we are Tinseltown because of all the incentives in other places. But maybe the pandemic has a silver lining and it'll bring back productions to L.A. I actually thought it was going to be the opposite because L.A. was such a hot spot that other places with fewer fewer incidences of the coronavirus would actually be able to, you know, be an incentive to go there like Cleveland or or Atlanta, but those places have kind of blown up now as well. Really, one place as good as another. And I think uh, one of the articles I was reading was 
artists are going to stay closer to home where they live, when their families are. So not just the actors, but the crew, you know, so a lot of those people are LA based. Mm -hmm. So they're just going to try to coordinate, you know, what space we have available here in LA to, you know, accommodate all these uh, productions. And, you know, they're going to take longer to do productions. So they're going to take up space for longer periods of time because it's going to be a lot more uh, coordinating a lot more time to prep and, you know, clean and deal with that part of the the studio um, before and after shooting. You can only shoot so many people at once. So you're going to have to sp- space out your shooting schedule more. So it's going to be even more uh, of a log jam than we previously talked about if, you know, a lot of it stays here. Yeah, but what I was saying was a lot of productions were leaving because they could get things cheaper out of state. That was oh, yeah. the whole issue. But sure. because people aren't going to want to travel or can't travel, it actually localizes everything. And a lot of the crews, I mean, I remember, for example, Michigan had a great film incentive. And we didn't have the infrastructure back in my home state when they had the incentives in place. And a lot of times the crews would come from L.A. The actors would definitely come from L.A. They would use like the cheap, you know, locations and, you know, eat the cheap food and stay in the hotels. And then they'd leave. The post would be done back here, you know, stuff like that. And so what I'm saying is when people were already upset because like, say everything was going to Louisiana to shoot or something from LA, like they would cast in LA and then send you out of, out of state, but now it's not an option. And so it's actually going to bring back the jobs once we open up to here, because there's no point in going to another state where you have to quarantine for 14 days before you can even shoot or something like that. So that's the silver lining. Well, the silver lining is, you know, that's more production in L.A., but actually capacity for for TV shooting was really almost full up here in L.A. It's the feature films that were doing the more location-based shooting. Mm. I mean, there was TV as well, but like Cleveland, um, same situation. They had a good tax incentive. Um, They had a bigger, a little better crew, uh, local crew capability. But yeah, post-production was all coming back to L.A. pretty much. But the... uh, the difference was that they were pretty much only doing film in Cleveland. So that film work could come back to Cleveland, come back to LA, but the TV production was pretty much already maxing out here. They were doing some more TV production in places like Atlanta and, and uh, Louisiana. And uh, you know, they, the the Canadian production was always pretty big. Yeah. Now uh, like TV and film are all going to want to film locally. Yeah, I wonder I wonder how that'll do for regional markets. Obviously, if the regional market doesn't have infrastructure, it probably won't work. But I even know, for example, certain shows that did film out of state, like let's say you film in Austin, Texas, they were eventually having to get actors from LA because they were just tapping into the local market too much. Like, yeah. you know, in a, in, a, in a town like, I don't know, Boise, Idaho, you probably have two actors, you know, you can't, you can't go to the same well all the time. So yeah, it, it, it will change. I remember watching the, on the X-Files that happened in Vancouver all the time where you would have one person would be like an extra one week and he'd be the villain the next week because they only <laughs> had so many actors in Vancouver. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wait, wasn't he just on the show last week? You know, it's funny. Speaking of that, I had a friend back in Michigan. Her cousin lived in Hawaii when they were filming Lost, and he was an extra on Lost, and he did it so many times, they had to ask him to not be on a couple episodes because, you know, in Lost, particularly for that show, people would look at every single thing and think it was a part of the story, even like, ooh, that potted plant in the corner or whatever, right? They th- they thought everything, 
you know, was a clue. Everything had a, yeah, yeah, a meaning. Subtle meaning, yeah. And so because you kept seeing her cousin, they thought he was, like, really big to the story. He was just an extra. But they had to be like, you can't be on it anymore because people think you're important to the story. They think there were, like, clones on the island or something. Yeah, like, he's a big clue to something, you know. And it's like, no, no, not true. But, <laughs> so, yeah. So what are you, what are you working on right now? Um, I, well, I'm working on a uh, narrative podcast that does have a pandemic element to it. I did start this about four years ago, so it's not like I started it now. But because of that, you asked me, you suggested I read a, a, a book by John Scalzi. And then uh, I really fell in love with the, the books he writes. They're really great. And so that's why we're interviewing him today. But uh, that's what I'm working on. Nice. Nice. And you? Same, same thing, still trucking away at the novel. I am starting to plot for season two of Expat. That'll be interesting as far as recording because of how we recorded it, everybody in the same room. We probably can't do that for a while unless we all have a mask on, and I don't know what that would do to the sound. That would but, be weird, yeah. Right? That would be very interesting. And um, yeah, just trying to build a community. Uh, we actually started a Discord server. So if you're a sh- uh, fan of the show Expat and you're a creator also, and you just want to like hang out with like-minded people, come check it out. Uh, go to expattheshow.com, and there's more information on the website. Join the community you just click on that and go there. Awesome. So up next is our interview with John Scalzi. We're excited to have with us the uh, Hugo Award-winning New York Times and Amazon best-selling sci-fi author, John Scalzi. John's uh, latest book just came out recently. It's titled The Last Emperox. It's the third book in the Interdependency series. It's already number two on Amazon's sci-fi list, uh, number six on the New York Times bestseller list, and number 10 on Audible, if you like audiobooks. It's narr- narrated by sci-fi legend Will Wheaton. Um, John also worked in television as a consultant on one of my favorite franchises, the Stargate franchise on Stargate Universe, which I'm interested to hear about. And he's got a, a few short uh, stories that were turned into short films for the Netflix anthology series, Love, Death, and Robot, Ro- Love, Death, and Robots, uh, which are I think just brilliant. Uh, thanks for coming on Writers Group Therapy, John. Thanks. It's good to be here. Thank you. So you were a former film critic, but you didn't go into film writing. You went into novels. How did that happen? Well, the reason I went into novels uh, is I am the world's laziest human, and I'm not ashamed to admit that. And it occurred to me that writing for films requires the buy-in of like literally dozens of people, right? You have to, you know, get someone to give you a chance with the script, then you have to write the script, and then everyone gives notes and all that sort of stuff. So I could do that, or I could just write a novel, and then the only person that I would have to deal with would be a an editor. Uh, and that just seemed the path of least resistance to me. Knowing what I know now, of course, that was a foolish assumption. But at the time, it seemed to make sense. And also, uh, for what I wanted to do, uh, I also just wanted to be able to describe the world in a way uh, that sort of lent itself to novels more than it did uh, with screenplays. So that's kind of the one of the reasons that I went in that particular direction. Now, the first novel that I ever wrote was about the film industry, was about Hollywood. That was Agent to the Stars. And so I love that book, by the way. Thank you. I still stuck close to home with it. But 
at the end of the day, uh, if I just honestly felt that novels made more sense for me uh, to do than screenwriting. Cool. Um, well, your latest book just came out, The Last Emperor Um what is going on today with your, your marketing your new book in the weirdest of times? How is that uh, different from your past uh, book launches? Well, it certainly has changed the game. I mean, what we were doing before was doing what we had done uh, pre in previous with books came out, which is uh, that we had set up a two and a half, three week tour where I would go from bookstore to bookstore to bookstore, talk to people there, do the event. Uh, and like I said previously, this has worked out great for us, and so uh, we were just going to do that again. And then, of course, uh, this uh, virus happened, and actually going out and seeing people in the real world became a thing where you're like, maybe let's not infect people or get infected. Uh, so I have to give full props to the uh, publicity and marketing people at Tor Books because literally in a space of a week, they went from planning this three and a half uh, or a three week tour to um, changing everything onto online appearances, interviews, that sort of thing. And uh, the shift has been really interesting. I think we get the benefit of everybody recognizes that we all have to stay at home. So uh, you make the best with what you've got. But the other thing is, is that I'm learning and everybody is learning how to make these online appearances work. The, what are the differences between the live appearances and the online appearances? What works uh, best in an online medium? And, and the thing is, is that you learn uh, what things work online as opposed to what things work live. And you try to work with that so that everybody comes away from the online experience having had a good time, just like you do with the live thing. It's not the same. And that's something that you do have to recognize what works for a live event isn't necessarily going to work as well for an online event and vice versa. So I think everybody uh, is just learning this all on the fly and we're making it up as we go along and we're learning useful things, right? You know, uh, as it turns out, you know, uh, live events are great, but the people who are not on your itinerary are not going to see you. So having the online events where the very first online event, we had people sign in from France and South Africa and New Zealand and, you know, Singapore. So the fact that you could do this thing and have it be uh, universal or global um, was actually really kind of interesting. That's amazing. That's amazing. Hey, I mean, you got to adapt to technology, right? Just have a big Zoom meeting or something. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing that I have absolutely learned is that doing online stuff uh, is not easier it is uh, exhausting in a way that live events are not, partly because you give out energy. And when a live event, you get the audience feedback. And with a Zoom event or Instagram Live or whatever, that uh, return on the energy isn't there. So I will finish an online event and I'll have a good time with it and it's enjoyable. But when I close my computer, I am wiped out in a way that I wouldn't have been uh, at a live event. And I'm not the only one who, who's noticed this. I've talked to other writers and, and everybody is like, why am I so tired? I'm at home. I didn't have to fly anywhere. But, you know, quite honestly, uh, that's one of the things that we're learning. It is really hard to just push all that energy into your webcam and, and make it work. So uh, again, you know, things we're learning. <laughs> 
it's a very good argument for why technology cannot replace real live interactions, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You can't replace real live interactions, but what you can do, and what I hope that we get out of this, is learn how online events are can complement with a small with an E instead of an I, um, the things that you do live. I mean, I think that the next tour I do uh, should be a combination of both live events and uh, online events that we can do things that uh, address both audiences. But again, you have to recognize that live events are good for very specific things. Online events are good for very specific things. They each require a certain skill that is independent of the other, and you have to be able to uh, accomplish both if you want to do the PR game moving forward. Yeah, that makes sense. Speaking of pandemics, so you have a series, the Lockin series, which is actually, I read that a couple of years ago and I got Tom into that series right at the beginning of this pandemic. The ironic thing was I wanted to read, I wanted him to read it because of the non-binary writing. He started reading it during lockdown and he goes, so did you want me to read this because it's about a pandemic? And I'm like, oh no, that was incidental. But now I know you wrote about the aftermath of you know how the world adapts to it. But just as a as a curious question, I know like for example, uh, Steven Soderbergh has been tapped by the DGA to head the after pandemic response team because of his movie Contagion. I think they're trying to get a hold of uh, was it Dane Cook because he apparently predicted a Wuhan virus. Has anyone? tapped you for being prophetic? Uh, I have a lot of people who ask if I knew anything ahead of time. And I have to keep reminding people if I could actually predict the future, I wouldn't be a science fiction writer. I would be uh, working in the stock market, right? Uh, so nobody has come to me and asked for that sort of thing. I, I do tell people that uh, this is all not surprising for anyone who's basically studied epidemiology as I did when I did my research for the lock-in thing, and anybody who understands uh, how humans react to crisis, which is another thing that I studied. I did a, a novella in the lock-in universe. It's called Unlocked. It's an oral history of how the Hayden's disease progressed, right? And uh, for that, um, if you read that, the first part of the dissemination of the virus, both in the Hayden's world and with COVID-19, kind of run one-to-one. And it's really sort of spooky. And people are like, how did you know? How? And it's like, the answer is, this is basic epidemiology. If you're not uh, paying attention, uh, this is how a disease is immediately going to transmit and do. So I can't take any real sort of credit because I was running a very basic scenario. And I am both uh, gratified as a author and disappointed as a human being that the world world response uh, related so accurately to what I wrote. Yeah, um, the world building is really interesting. I'm working on my own kind of um, post-pandemic story as well, which is one of the reasons I wanted to read Locked In, which I, I, I totally devoured Locked In and Head On. They were both fantastic. Um, and then the interdependency, I, I, I had a chance to read a little bit of that because I, I, I wasn't the first book of yours I picked up, but that's your new book, The Last Emperor And these are just amazingly detailed and, you know, well thought out worlds. They're very rich, I guess you would call it. Um, 
do you come up with the idea for the world first or the story first or I mean, where do you where do you uh, start with that process? A lot depends on the project. I don't really uh, have a one single process that I do every single time. Sometimes I will lead with a character that I think is interesting that I would like to do something with and I build a world around that character so the character can do interesting things. Sometimes I build the world first and basically run a D&D adventure with the characters in it. Um, in the case of both Lock-In and uh, the Interdependency series, of, of which uh, The Last Emperor is the, the third book in the series, what I did was I had some very basic concepts that I wanted to do. With Lock-In, it was there's a world-changing global event but we're not going to talk about that we're going to talk about the world that exists after it 25 years later for the interdependency it is what would it be like if a natural resource that everybody just sort of relied on and didn't think about went away because the universe doesn't care what you uh, want or need care if you use this thing um uh yeah, so um, uh, your character actually, I really like how your characters um, across all your books um, they have a, a nice snarkiness. Uh, that you, you have a lot of humor, even though some of the subject matter is dark and 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 serious. Um, is that just kind of from your own personality? Then I think it's mostly from my personality. I'm not the world's most serious human being, but I also think in general um, people do find humor in dark situations. If you look at um, you know people who are in the middle of a war or in the middle of depression. It's not like people stop joking about things. They use it as a survival tactic to deal with what's going on. So as far as I'm concerned, um, it would be more um, noticeable if there were not humor uh, than the fact that there is. I mean, I think that humor is a natural reaction by uh, humans to deal with the world uh, that's kind of falling apart on them. So that's why I have it in there. Cool. Um, I am a huge fan of uh, Love, Death, and Robots. That was a great series on Netflix. And also Stargate Universe, you were a consultant for, which is, I, I thought, one of their best series. It's kind of sad that ended early. Um, uh, how, um, how did you get involved in the, the TV projects? Um, uh, and, and to what degree were you involved? And do you see yourself doing more of that in the future? Or do you see more of your your projects, more of your books becoming uh, visual media? Well, with Stargate Universe, what had happened was uh, Joe Malazzi, who is a producer on Stargate Atlantis, um, contacted me and says, I really like your stuff. Would you like to write an episode of Stargate Atlantis? Uh, and my answer to that was no. And the reason was not because I didn't like Stargate Atlantis, but that I literally had not watched Stargate Atlantis. And I, so I would be the wrong person to write in that universe. I had literally not seen it. So if I were to write a screenplay in it, it would basically be somebody else would have to come in and clean up my mess. So I was like, no, uh, and, but thank you. I'm really flattered. And he said, well, we're thinking about doing another Stargate um, series. And if we do that, can we get hold of you? And I thought that that was just his sort of graceful exit, you know, and I was like, sure, why not? Um, and then a year later, he's like, hey, remember that thing that I asked you about? Well, now we're doing Stargate Universe. Do you want to get in on the ground floor? Because then you will know all the stuff. And I was like, yes, absolutely. That would be great. 
Um, so for that, I was their consultant. They would send me their scripts and I would point out like scientific uh, concerns or plot concerns and stuff like that. And uh, it was useful. The way that I describe it is I was the guy who at a science fiction convention holds up his hand and goes, yeah, in season three, you had Bob say this, but in season two, episode five, we clearly see that that couldn't have happened. So why did you screw it up? Right. I got to be that guy before that guy got to be that guy so that that guy would be frustrated. And so that was a great job. Uh, with Love, Death and Robots, uh, Tim Miller, who is one of the producers, um, was also a fan and had asked specifically for two of the stories uh, to adapt. And we're like, sure, why not? And then I sent him a third story, uh, which was going to be in an anthology. And he took that as well. And he and I just uh, got to know each other kind of that way. And he's been uh, a really good person to uh, work with, along with the entire crew uh, at Blur. Um, they have been really good at letting me into that process. And I will give them advice and they will take it or not because that's their privilege to do that. But um, they've just been great. I'm looking forward to whatever they have for season two and three. I can't talk about whether I'm involved or not. I can just say I'm really looking forward to it. With regard to other work, I mean, we have two things that we have officially told people are in process. Old Man's War is at Netflix. Uh, the Interdependency series uh, is uh, optioned by Working Title. And in both of those cases, things are progressing and they will happen or they won't because Hollywood is Hollywood and you need dozens of people to sign off on what you do. But uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with each of those. That no is lock amazing. in yet, huh? No lock yeah. in. I want to see what threeps look like. That's what I really want to see. <laughs> right. Well, uh, the the thing that I that's really the truth is so much is contingent actually on who reads your books and what gets made and if that thing's successful. So uh, if something gets made and your name's attached to it and it works then the interest in what you do increases and there's more opportunity to see more of yourself on screen. Um, so a lot, I mean, if Old Man's War finally gets made uh, and comes out and it's a hit, then everything else will all of a sudden get optioned and off will go to the races. And then I will never have to work again and I can sit in a hot tub full of money. <laughs> Sounds good. So what advice would you have for other writers who are listening to this right now? The advice I have, if you're a brand new writer, um, is simply button chair, keep doing it. Uh, if you are just starting off, recognize that your first efforts aren't going to be great, but that's like anything. You wouldn't pick up a guitar and all of a sudden rip out the world's best guitar solo. So just keep working on it and you get better. For the people who are in the middle of it and who have kept sending stuff out and, you know, have gotten it back and are kind of getting discouraged, um, just the reminder that this is the process and it's never too late. There was somebody on um, Twitter the other day who was like, I'm about to be 30 and I feel like the, you know, the timer is running out to publish. And then I and a whole bunch of other people came in and were like, well, you know, I didn't get my first novel published until I was 35, which in my case is the actual truth. Other people were like 37, 42. You know, there's no there's no time on it. Um, you, you just keep going until something hits. And in the meantime, 
you get to learn about the process. And uh, so in both of those cases, it is just being patient and doing the work. And that kind of is not like super inspiring advice, just keep grinding. But that's part of being a writer. Just keep grinding, just keep doing it. And uh, it will uh, pay off hopefully in uh, you know, financial and commercial terms. And if it doesn't, then you still get the actual joy of being creative and enjoying that process, which is not to be discounted. If the only person who gets to see the worlds that you create are you, then someone still has seen them, someone has still enjoyed them, and that world still got created. That is not nothing. That's a really good note to end on. Thank you. Where can people uh, find you online if they want to learn more about you and your writing? Well, on I have a blog, which is called Whatever, which has been there since 1998. Just type whatever into Google and it will, uh, and it will show up after the di- dictionary definitions. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Scalzi. Uh, and on Instagram, I'm at jsculzy. Great. Thank awesome. you so much. Good luck with the book, and uh, I'll definitely be reading you into the future. And we'll be looking for your work on the screen, too. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you so much.